Hey there, it's Ben. I'm giving a shout out to Leslie, Chris, Brent, and Christine for being players on Heroes this past season and seeing it through to the end. There are some discussion episodes coming up starting next week. This week, Heroes is off. But for the story itself, that's actually it. So if you're holding off until this season's done, well, it's done. Go, take a look. Also, we've got James D'Amato on this week to talk about improvisation at the table and are quite thankful for his appearance. Also, I'm giving a shout-out to our patrons who have stood by us and helped cover the costs of running the network. If you're able to give a pledge and want to, you can find us at patreon.com slash Way. Thank you, and now on to the show. As I set down the bog wing hard, I see a form approach. Lowering the corvette's landing ramp, I remember where our contact is supposed to be, and I hope Risa isn't taken by surprise by her supplier. Hearing the ramp of the corvette deploy, I'm pulled away from my work to see my smuggling contacts have arrived. The bog wing doesn't look like much, but it's got more than its fair share of carbon scoring. And in this business, if you've been shot and you haven't blown up, you're doing something right. I tap the dial on the hover crate next to me so we can start loading up the copies of the Ultimate RPG Character Backstory Guide because they've got to ship by October. As I lean out the opening and see the crate, I let out a whistle. Well, this will be hard to get it to its destination before people try and take it out from under us. Join us this time on an impromptu tale from the Hydean Way, where your hosts, Risa D. And Ben Yindel. With special guest, James D'Amato. This week we have a special guest on, James, coming here from the OneShot Network to talk to us about and talk with us about adapting story ideas that come up into actual game mechanics. And with OneShot and campaign, and it's so improv as part of its makeup, this seemed like the perfect topic to bring you in for, especially considering I'm pretty nosy at it. Well, thank you. Thank you both so much for having me on, especially to talk about a topic as interesting as this, because I think you're absolutely right. We have such a heavy improv style over at One Shot and Campaign and really all the shows on the network that uh, getting our perspective on how mechanics interact with story, I I think is going to be really neat. I guess sort of the first question I've got is in many ways, the players and the characters are very apt to be going off into unexpected directions. Sometimes you just cannot prepare for these. Trying to impersonate a group of stormtroopers for a easy one off the top of my head. Is there any sort of simple things that you can suggest as basic preparations for us to attempt to do ahead of time? Of course. Um, So there are a lot of different games that anticipate unexpected decisions by the players in different ways. You know, this can range from the sort of free form uh, philosophy of a game like Fiasco, which is very open and sort of actually tries to cultivate unexpected uh, player decisions. Or this can be sort of more tightly regimented and more mechanically focused with OSR systems that have, you know, lots of charts for you to roll on so you can randomly generate a world to react to the players. And I think for the DM, at least, what it comes down to is reaction because you're taking in information from the players 
And even if you weren't quite anticipating exactly the actions the players were going to take, like, you know, impersonating those stormtroopers, your job as the GM is to just be the world around them. Uh, Even if their plans didn't sort of go as you envisioned them in the first place, you still have like the principal truths that ground your world and and how people react to uh, different things that the players are doing. And, you know, you can sort of corral player behavior with how you react as a storyteller. If you're clearly not buying into the stormtrooper impersonation plot, you know, challenging them to be more legitimate and behave in more expected ways will sort of help that along. So I I would say if you're going to prepare something, because it's it's hard to prepare for the unexpected, right? Because if we did prepare for the unexpected, it would be the expected. It would be something that we anticipated. The thing that you can do is review what you need to accomplish. You know, figure out why your players are behaving in the way they're behaving. If they went undercover as stormtroopers, are they trying to ferret out information? Are they trying to sneak into a base somewhere? Figure out what the player's goals are. And from there, you can decide exactly what obstacles should stay in their place. I can tell you on campaign, we generally have a sort of like hostile and combative attitude towards the rest of the world around us. But, uh, you know, in a situation like when we're impersonating stormtroopers, uh, this is something that we use to our advantage. I remember one of the times on the show when we did that, uh, we started a fight with the stormtroopers over the comms just because it was like a regular office fight, the sort of thing that somebody who was just taking a lot of baggage into work with them uh, would have. So we were playing into what we figured regular office politics would be and sort of hiding in plain sight. And, you know, our goal, because we were on Mandalore, which was uh, Imperial occupied at that time, and because we were very wanted by the Empire, was to just sort of uh, sneak by undetected and gather information so that we could make our escape from the planet. Cat was sort of using the challenge mechanics of, you know, putting these social interactions in front of us so that we could get to the next step in our goal, which was, I think, causing a prison break. So she put this social obstacle of behave in a way the stormtroopers expect so that they believe you're stormtroopers. So once we surpass that, we could get into the sort of computers and mechanics checks that we needed to make in order to make our prison break plan happen. I really like that piece of advice about keeping focused on what the actual goal of the scene is because it really does allow for the scene to expand beyond just a linear path. Absolutely. And and when we think about role-playing and how it functions, a lot of it is goal-oriented storytelling. When we think about D&D and what its basic like elements are, is you are heroes and adventurers who are looking for treasure, and the obstacle between you and treasure is slaying monsters, right? In order to generate most stories, uh, whether it's the dungeon master providing the heroes with like a specific mission or task, which the reward for will be gold, or it's the adventurers themselves like hunting down rumors and whatnot of, of where they might be able to find a dungeon that they can delve into in order to get treasure. Like It's still about the party and their goals. And even longer form story-oriented campaigns that have nothing to do with the basic D&D plunder setup are still 
based around like character goals, like maybe some lost prince is trying to reclaim their kingdom, or perhaps you've got an assassin who uh, is trying to make up for her life on the wrong side of the law. All of that is pretty goal oriented, even when the goal is pretty vague uh, with something like redemption. The idea of taking the approach that the players are putting before you and keeping in mind the goal there's a fairly large occurrence of there's not exactly a check out there for it, especially if you start getting into the more wizardry or mystical sorts where you've got alternative ways of using spells or doing unique interpretations on force powers. What would be your suggestion on trying to adjudicate something along that lines, like a force user who's trying to jump between cars in a high altitude land speeder chase. It gets right to the meat of what we're talking about here, which is how game mechanics are interacting with story elements. And and I know I get a lot of feedback for the One Shot podcast where people say, oh, you know, you haven't played with all of the rules of the game, or it it seems like you've missed or ignored this part here. Um, And as a game master, I sort of see all game systems as different ways to service what I'm trying to do with my friends, which is just sort of have fun and tell the story about these characters that they're interested in. So in some circumstances, uh, it can be super useful to use all of uh, the game mechanics provided to you in the book. But in others, you know, players, like you pointed out, might be trying to do things that the book didn't really foresee or intend, or perhaps you don't want to spend as much time as uh, the book wants you to spend on something. Like for Dungeons and Dragons, I'm almost never using the encumbrance rules because while that can be a fun and interesting (laughs) rule set to like, I mean, it is super interesting if you give your party like uh, 10,000 gold and you're like, okay, how are you going to carry that much? (laughs) That that can be fun, but I'm not always telling that story, right? So when we get to these unique moments where, you know, you as a GM uh, have to make a judgment call, uh, for me, it always breaks down to what is interesting about this moment and what do we want to see out of this moment? So let's take a look at this uh, Jedi who's trying to use the Force to jump between one car and another. Uh, Thankfully, Force and Destiny sort of does foresee this happening um, because this is something that's happened in Star Wars films before. Once or twice, yeah. Yeah, you, you as a game master might not want to follow the letter of the law on that because a failed check on this jump between uh, moving hover cars could mean that the Jedi just falls to their death. And especially with uh, Force and Destiny and the rest of the fantasy flight games, uh, falling stinks. Falling (laughs) is the most deadly thing that can happen to you in those games, basically. You know, it, it is, okay, the thing that I want about this moment is there to be an element of danger when my player jumps between these cars, right? I I don't want it to be a boring thing because otherwise then you'd just say, okay, well, you jump because I don't care about what is happening to you mid-jump or the consequences of the jump. We're saying the jump itself is a tense and important moment that we want to look at in the fiction. So then you, as the game master, have to make this sort of tough call. Is like, well, the rules of the system say that they would fall, and if they fell, they would probably die. And I, I don't 
personally want that to happen. I don't think my player wants to risk that with this jump. Uh, so in the interest of making the most interesting decision, let's say then that they're jumping to avoid a certain amount of damage for an unsure jump. Like if they fail the jump check, they don't fall to their death. They fail the jump check and now they're hanging off the side of uh, the vehicle that they were jumping to after getting slammed into one of the doors. So they're jumping to risk like, you know, let's say three damage, which is not insignificant. Three damage going through soak. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're trying to determine what is interesting about this jump and, and what do we want to emphasize about it? And especially with something like Force and Destiny, where there are a lot of moving parts, you don't just have the fail um succeed mechanic you have the advantage disadvantage mechanic like advantage disadvantage uh, might mean a lot in the circumstances of this jump and and we might even be more interested in that uh than the success failure perspective so you you might even say okay uh make this jump i don't care whether you fail or succeed what i do care about is how many advantages disadvantages you get and that's certainly not a part of the rules uh that that's not something the system encourages but it is stuff that's there in front of you and you as the game master because like there's like no uh rules referee from fantasy flight who's going to like revoke your license (laughs) to run the game if if you don't run it the way they wrote it in the book you can take this moment and you can make what you want out of it um and i i encourage game masters whenever they're making calls like this to always sort of question what do i want to accomplish out of this happening in the scene what are my players expecting and hoping for out of the scene i think some of the worst games that i've ever been involved with are games where you're rolling for every single thing, whether it's interesting or not, like whether they want to be a part of this scene or not. Like nobody wants to roll a bunch of diplomacy checks to deal with a character that, you know, they pretty much have an established relationship with. You should only really be rolling for things, in in my opinion, when you are personally interested in it, either as, as a player or a game master. I am going to disagree a tiny bit because everyone likes to roll. Oh, that is true. That is true. Uh, Riza, I, I think that's a super good point. <laughs> I give, I even when something isn't like super plot relevant, I will give my players something to roll because they enjoy rolling things. <laughs> but that's because it's physical dice, and physical dice are fun to roll. Continue. That that's a no, that that is a super good point, and I should be taking that into account when I'm talking about this. But like the act of rolling can be super fun, but what you don't want to happen is to have that act uh, become an impediment to what you're trying to do. No, definitely. One of my favorite examples of systems that, that can do this is Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> Call of Cthulhu has that spot hidden role, right? And it's an investigative system. And because it's an investigative system, uh, you are trying to find information in order to move the plot forward. It's super scary to to be in a situation where you don't have all the information that you want to have and, and you're questioning what the right decision is, but it's super boring to be in a game where you have no information at all and everything seems to be happening in the background and you don't know what's going on. Because like Call of Cthulhu could very well come down to you missing a spot hidden roll, um, not being able to retry it, and then you know you wake up a week, week later and the world has ended and you don't know why. so it's a question of like yeah rolling is fun and i i do think rolling is one of the tactile and psychological rewards of role-playing 
but you don't want that rolling to become an impediment and you don't want to prompt that rolling in a time where you and the player both know what you want to happen. If you're going to roll for something, we'll go back to that jumping between cars. Let's say both you and the player want the jumping between cars thing to go off. So what you're rolling for, like like the thing I modified earlier, is not whether they fail and miss the check completely, but it's how they succeed or are they succeeding with with like a setback. Um, that sort of investigation is something that you know you've already sort of agreed is interesting to you both. As you're talking about this, I do keep circling around the idea of because players are going to come up with divergences from any of the paths that you've carefully laid out, the idea of how to get their new checks that you've never thought of and how to get them to essentially fail forward and make it so that it isn't a adventure stopper. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess we're talking about the sort of circumstance where you know the adventure is like on the next level of the dungeon, but players have really decided that something else, uh, some small element is more important and they're not looking in the area where where you need them to look in order to move the story forward, right? Right. Okay, so in, in a circumstance like that, you know, you don't have to be gentle about letting players know that. Like, you can either through the game or in real life, because your players are all people that you can talk to, say, hey, you guys, uh, I, I love the energy that, that you're putting into this skeleton that you found in, in this room. <laughs> but, like, there is more to this dungeon. So, you know, I, I can present you with, we can continue with the dungeon sort of adventure that uh, I designed for us um, and that's elsewhere in the dungeon and like you might be able to find that or you know in story you could say yes after examining the skeleton for a healthy amount of time uh your character who has information that that you don't as a player uh, has determined that there is in fact nothing interesting about this skeleton (laughs) or and you can say or you know maybe the dungeon isn't interesting to you and we can put together a spur of the moment adventure based on the skeleton and who the skeleton was in their life (laughs) and for some game masters that is like a terrifying prospect uh for me that would be the sort of thing that i would love to see a party do and like join them on that weird journey (laughs) but because your your party members your players they're all people like you can talk to them and be like hey guys i I built this whole dungeon and and there's more to it and we can find that. And like, if, if you want to say, okay, because I had to come forward because you didn't figure out the thing, what this is going to cost you is like time or resources or something. We'll say like the party does a thorough six hour search of this dungeon and now you're all fatigued, but you did find the, the hidden door that you had missed earlier or something like that. You know, you, you can bring in a mechanical thing to like say, I don't I don't want to say punish the players because I, I think that's bad, but like I, I don't like to encourage the mentality that if players don't uh, play into a specific plan that you had that they are deserving of a punishment or something. But mm-hmm. but like a, a resource trading of saying like, okay, you know, we, we didn't find it this way. We didn't find it through the puzzle solving, which 
mean, signals to me as a GM that you, you guys aren't into the puzzle. So what we'll do instead is say that, of course, your party full of clever adventurers eventually manages to solve this puzzle. It just happens on a, a larger time scale, uh, which which comes with a bit of a setback. It takes a couple of resources from you. I also subscribe to the throw a pebble in the corner kind of a thing. Like mm. if you want them to go somewhere, you kind of have to like, you throw the pebble and, and oh, you hear something from the, uh, in the next room, which is where I want you to go. Um, and then yeah. they're going to want to go investigate that. Because as soon as you say something, like you accidentally mentioned the skeleton. Now they've spent five, ten minutes on the skeleton. And you're like, the skeleton has nothing. There's nothing to do with the skeleton. So <laughs> suddenly you hear, you hear water splashing in the next room. It kind of coaxes them into the next thing. Um, and that can help. And <laughs> No, that's a huge help. And if you kind of want to mask that you're doing that, you can even like wait until one of your players decides to make some kind of role, any kind of role, and use that role as like uh, sort of a signal to them that, oh, yeah, there's there's something happening in the next room over and that's where you need to be looking. Yeah. Just figure out, again, like with what I said earlier with, with Divergent Paths, is figure out what the goal is, where you need the players to be, and the basic construction of how stories are told in role-playing games is there is an obstacle between them and that goal. And if you make that obstacle obvious, they can engage with it. Hearing the two of you talk about that, and apparently it's just something up here in Edmonton anyway, because I just keep thinking of the pseudo bioware way of uh, branching narratives that then i'll just go back to the same path <laughs> i hear about that skeleton and i'm thinking okay this is a previous adventurer that is now pointing them in the direction i'm wanting them to go yeah absolutely i mean like it it's it's really it depends on how you want to to do it anytime i'm wanting uh like if they go on a on a side track Right. I have um, the arc finale of something I was just doing with one of my player groups. They were supposed to go into like, this is their main goal is to go (laughs) into an institute. Right. And instead of getting the tools they need to go in there, they decided they needed to go talk to a random person I mentioned three sessions ago. They went there and that person they wanted to talk to told them to go get the tools to go and and she gave them special things to help them to do it. And then they still wanted to go to another thing that I mentioned again, right? They they were like, okay, but there's still time. I'm like, okay, cool. So they go to the next place and that other person there mentions offhandedly, you can take these tools and go to the place you're supposed to be going. Because they still, the, like, if my players didn't want to achieve that goal anymore, I wouldn't have kept trying to steer them back towards it, but they did. <laughs> so it's one of those things where you can use people in your stories as well to try and, and move them back towards their goal, because sometimes they can get distracted by shiny things or Bigfoot in this case. <laughs> That's always my idea when it's like that, that kind of situation where we're trying to get, because they really, you mention one thing, one thing and you give it slightly too much detail and it seems now like a very important thing and it was never a very important thing <laughs> well, and that is a huge part of like the craft of game mastering right because the only text that your party has to go off of is is things that you say 
So mm-hmm. if you provide a detail for something, you are making it one of the only things that the players can interact with in the universe. So providing a, a, a detail for something or, or, or describing something, naming something gives it more importance than maybe even you intend to give it in the first place. Um, so it becomes very easy, uh, especially for for uh, groups of, of newer players, to get distracted and fixated on locations, NPCs, objects that you as the game master didn't intend to be important uh, just because like they're looking for things to engage with in the world. And it is so super common for groups of players to get uh, hyper fixated on a particular NPC and want to learn more about it. And you as the game master, like, yeah, you, you can be put in a pickle of like, oh, man, I didn't want this session to be about this creepy groundskeeper. But but here we are. <laughs> you know, you can either like <laughs> just try and take that distraction off the table or you can lean into it and look for ways to incorporate this thing that the party seems to be really interested in uh, into the larger story that you're trying to do elsewhere. That's generally my thing is I'll try to just incorporate whatever it is. They got they get super fixated on things like um oh what was it it was um just this woman that I had mentioned before and she was just supposed to be just a councilwoman and they got super fixated on her and they needed to go find her and talk to her and I'm like okay well I gave her a name so that's my own fault <laughs> <laughs> and I described her you know she had red hair so this was a thing. And so we went to find her and I'm like, okay, well, you guys want to talk to her. So I gave her a whole house. I gave her a wife. I gave her a political platform. So just they wanted to know about her. So it's like, okay, we'll take the time to know about her and she'll move you on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then, then, then that becomes just another element of your toolbox because mm-hmm. now your players have this NPC that they they know and like and they have all these things about them and like that could be a bit of leverage for you later in the game when you do need to move the story forward because that character can ask them for favors and whatnot to point uh, the party back in the direction you want them to walk. Yep. Okay, one of the things that keeps on coming to mind for me is it doesn't matter which sort of system unless you're talking actually fiasco where it's pretty much nothing. There's always a thing that your players are wanting to do that is just completely out of something that the mechanics of the game are ever intended to try. Okay, for Star Wars, the thing that just jumps to mind is mech fighting, because I know people would want to. And yes, you're sort of trying to homebrew this, but... Are you saying, like, someone making, like, two ATSTs fight? Is that my... Is that what I'm... Uh, okay, like, that would be funny on its own. <laughs> I was more meeting like a Gundam style thing. Or so yeah, like, like Palpatine has has unpaled his like new death <laughs> weapon, and it's a yeah. Voltron. Or or I guess the, the party's <laughs> like actually, what we need to defeat this star destroyer is to build a Voltron. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess, you know, my advice is, first of all, like, seriously consider, is this a thing that I want to be a part of my game? Like, you are a person at the table, too. And it's just like, if mech fighting is going to break your Star Wars universe, you don't have to go along with it just because players have expressed interest in it. Like, all gaming is consent-based. And even as the game master, even though, like, one of your goals is to, to make the players, like, feel like they're having fun, that doesn't mean that you have to 
give it to every impulse that they have. Like if, if you decide that, yes, you know what? A mech fighting is going to make my party mm-hmm. happy and it's going to make me happy. I want to figure out how to do this. Uh, then I advise you to look at what the system has already provided for you to cobble together an approximation of this. Because like at the end of the day, if you're doing something that's fully outside the rules, like, yeah, you are going to have to go through the trouble of making a couple things up for yourself. But like, luckily, since we're talking fantasy flight Star Wars, the way ship combat works and ffg star wars does sort of create a ship (laughs) and give everybody a different role on that ship so it's almost a perfect system to do mech combat voltron style mech combat where everybody's Hmm. operating part of the same big robot now that you mention it that makes a huge amount of sense i'd love to see it especially because of how analogous star wars and voltron are with each other (laughs) Uh, especially the new variation on voltron most certainly oh yeah Okay, one of the other things that's circulating in my mind, how have you dealt with tropes that then become mechanical within a given adventure? And what I mean by that is, like, well, NPCs that recur is one thing that's almost like it, but, like, trusty weapons or actual items that are continuously passed around, or actually droids are another one that routinely shows up right so sort of taking the emotional relationship the players and characters have to these objects that that don't have big significant roles generally and sort of rewarding that importance with with mechanics right yes i mean i I think even in the question it sort of sums up what my suggestion is to do it's like if you want these sort of mundane things to be more significant or special or if you want to reward like the investment that a particular character is putting in something uh, then it's up to you as the game master of like yeah i guess when you are using this particular wrench or or this particular like toolkit you'll have an extra blue die to your role or you know in D D, you'll you'll roll with advantage or I guess like they, they think that they brought a little bit of this back. You'll roll with plus one uh, when you're doing this. So it, hmm. it's just knowing what to do that with and, and when to pick it up is like, really, what is the importance this is to someone um, and, and how their character operates and how their character sees the world. And, you know, again, what do you as the game master uh, want to focus on? Because when you give something a, mechanical advantage in the game it calls party attention to that right because the part of these games is like this power fantasy so if you're giving someone extra power (laughs) like they're looking at the root of that power what's what's the root of the power oh the uh, emotional story and attachment that uh, this person is told regarding this object so to get that reward i need to chase down that phenomena going on two things that you just said and it's a little bit divergent of the general topic yeah for a tales episode this is remarkably on topic (laughs) in this case since i seem to ask this of all the gms who come through what has your experience been with for npcs stealing from the players Ooh, oh boy i mean so i guess it all comes to be goal oriented you know what are you trying to do with someone stealing from the PCs? Is there significant like story motivation for it? You know, do they need to steal this thing so that the players then follow them? 
or are you trying to get a critical like uh, MacGuffin out of the party's hands so that you can raise the threat of the campaign? Or are you playing a more sort of holistic OSR thing where there just happens to be a thief in the area and uh, they, they are stealing something simply because the, the party is there? So decide what your goal is. I'd say if your goal is like random chance um, and you're not really trying to accomplish anything with it, you, you just want it to be a particular threat, I would advise to like stay away from things that uh, are character critical or or maybe even mechanics critical like it can be pretty devastating if the fighter loses their like enchanted armor right because that's super expensive it's hard to replace it it's so much involved with how their character functions that like it's probably not a great thing to lose just out of a random encounter. Now, if you're trying to steal something in order to like motivate something in the story, like the story of how that theft happens and and what surrounded that theft, like I might even like throw to the players a little bit dungeon world style and go, Hey, during the night, a, a thief came through. You guys didn't notice it. What did they steal and what evidence did they leave behind? And that way your party can like straightforwardly tell you, this is what I want to see in being robbed. This is what I am willing to lose. And this is how I want to try and make that right if I can. Yeah. And that gives like a player like the freedom to, if they don't want to do this thief story, they can shut you down. They can be like, uh, yeah, they stole the, uh, decoy gold purse that i keep on my belt that's actually full of rocks <laughs> so then they got to tell the story of like how their adventurer is super clever and even in circumstances where they were caught unaware like they had a contingency plan so that tells you something important about that character and it's a cool moment for the player and also like it signals to you that like the party really wasn't interested in being bested by some random thief today and like that's okay my own experience with it is, well, apparently I'm just dealing with very semi-murderous player characters <laughs> on account of I've yet to have a crew that hasn't been just trying to hunt them down. <laughs> when do you think it's a time to say no? When a player character has an idea, a story idea they really want to do that is going to maybe disrupt what other players are wanting to do or something like that. What is the tipping point for just looking at them and saying no? Hey, uh, this allows me to talk about one of my favorite things in gaming, <laughs> and that is the X card and safety mechanics, generally speaking. Now, a lot of people look at a tool like the X card uh, just to bring people in who, who maybe don't know. Uh, the X card is a role-playing safety mechanic. It's, it's something that uh, people play with in order to avoid points of sensitivity uh, and make games run generally more smoothly. The basic premise of the X card is that while you are playing, there is in the middle of the table a note card with an X on it. And if ever the story appears to be varying, veering into like uh, waters that, that you as a player or you as a GM don't like, you can tap that card to signal to the group non-verbally that, hey, uh, this is starting to go in a direction that I'm not comfortable with. 
and like the basic premise of it, it's like, well, what if somebody has a past trauma that you don't know about, or they have a phobia mm-hmm. or something like if, if, if someone at the table is afraid of spiders and you have just described a, like you've been like, okay, you walk into this temple and it's a temple of a spider God. They might tap the X card and go, Hey, I have a specific fear of spiders. It's pretty bad for me. I, I don't even like hearing spiders described. Could we not with, with spiders? It's a way to, you know, keep the game safe. It's not about stressing your friend out. You can go, okay, yeah, it's not a spider temple. It's a rat temple or an ant temple or whatever whatever you can fit in there instead. So, like, that is the basic idea. But it also works just for player comfort. On a recent episode of One Shot, uh, Alex Roberts and I played a game called Starcrossed, which is a romance role-playing game. And like romance already thematically, it stresses a lot of people out. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's one of those things that you probably want to have an X card at the table. And we did use it for like big, important things. I at the top of the thing, I was like, hey, I don't want to do any stories because it's a tragic love story system. I, I don't want to do any stories where uh, when char- if, if characters fall in love, it necessitates one or the other being hurt. Like like a story mm. about a vampire and the vampire has to suck their, their lover's blood and like hurt them in order to live. I wasn't interested in any of that abuse stuff, so I hit the X card on that. And then it can also just be for like, oh, you know what? I'm not interested in those themes. We, we talked about doing a love story uh, between an alien scientist and a human scientist and it being a sort of first contact thing. And I had mentioned that uh, what might be keeping these two apart is that the alien scientist could have a Federation style code of like, oh, I can't uh, influence uh, less developed beings. And Alex said, actually, I, I don't really like the idea of an advanced species uh, looking down on another advanced species and saying, I'm more developed than you. That feels really colonialistic to me. So mm. let's not do that. Um, I'm going to X that. The X card is this beautiful mechanic that can have influence over story uh, where you can find moments uh, or or you, you, you have a mechanic that gives you permission to say no to moments. And the way the X card functions ideally is that you explain what the problem is, but you don't have to explain why it's a problem if you don't want to. So if you're afraid of spiders, you don't have to tell the story of how when you were 11 years old, you turned on uh, the (laughs) shower and a shower of spiders rained down over you, scarring you horribly for life. You don't have to tell that story. You can just say, hey, not into spiders. And everybody at the table uh, sort of can accept it. As far as when do I find those no moments, um, for me, it's always... Like primarily it's an area of comfort. It's like if something is going to make someone at the table uncomfortable, even if it's a person who's not directly involved with the scene, like I don't necessarily want it at at the table. I'm someone who is is very positive about like sex and romance in my games, but like if there's even one person at the table who's not digging something, uh, you know, those storylines don't have to be like group activities. And that that can be something that I resolve with uh, the players who are interested in in, the, in that uh, one-on-one. The other thing is like, if it's going to take away someone else's fun, that can be ruining a big upcoming storyline for people. It can be, you know, big event that that's going to cause intergroup strife. If it's doing something that is going to be disruptive to the social dynamic of the table, 
that's a time when I would say no. And the last time I, I, I think is if I'm feeling intellectually lazy, like <laughs> if it's clear that the party really, really wants to do this story uh, about the skeleton that they found in the dungeon and I'm just feeling tired, then you can go, no, you know what? I prepared this adventure for tonight and I feel <laughs> like it's the one that I need to do. <laughs> If you guys want to do the skeleton, we can we can revisit the skeleton later. Or actually, the skeleton just burst into flames. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like moments that you want to say no. It really it it all breaks down to comfort and and what's going to make people comfortable and happy. And ideally, the games that you're playing should all be built around everybody mutually thinking an idea is cool and that they want to explore it and that they're excited about it because if not everybody's excited about the game then what are you doing so very yeah. very true tell us about your book okay so um i wrote a book um and the basic premise of the book is that it's a guide designed to help people uh develop more complex character backstories it's full of exercises and mini games and uh, writing prompts uh, that you can do either as part of your regular game or when you're alone, uh, not with other people at the table, to sort of figure out new things about your character. So, for example, there are a bunch of character uh, or writing prompts that are oriented around a character's equipment and what they keep in their bag and what emotional significance those different pieces of uh, equipment have to the character. You might learn simply thinking about your fighter's sword that, you know, your fighter got it from their uh, sword fighting teacher. And even if it's not the best sword, it's the one that they want to use because it's their link to that relationship. So, you know, like just thinking about that, you've learned, oh, my character had a master who like they had a positive relationship with and uh, they make emotional decisions about that relationship uh, even when it doesn't make the most sense. So the book is full of stuff like that. And one of the things that I like most about it is it helps increase the playtime that you have when you're not at the table. Whether people recognize it or not, uh, when you actually sit down to play D&D, that's not the only time you're actually, you know, taking part in the role-playing activity. When you're building a character, you're playing the game. When you are world-building alone as a GM, when you're preparing for a session, you're playing the game. And I think almost any time uh, you spend thinking about your character or your game world, that's an act of play. The only difference uh, between that and your scheduled D&D session is that like you've made the time to sit around and do that around other people. And when you make decisions <laughs> about your character outside the game, it's not magically less important than when you make decisions about your character inside the actual like four hours that you've set aside to play. The book, which is called The Ultimate RPG Character Backstory Guide, is just full of exercises to help you do things like that uh, on your own with this book. How system-specific is it? It is not very system-specific. Uh, there are a couple mechanics things in the book that are made with D&D &D in mind. But like, you know, that, that works for D&D, &D, Pathfinder, Dungeon World. Any of your fantasy-themed role-playing systems will have some sort of interface with the more crunchy bits of the game. 
generally speaking, the themes of a lot of the exercises in the books are built around fantasy, just because that's one of the most common like settings for role playing. But, you know, you you can take those uh, the ideas and exercises in the book because fantasy is such a broad idea. You can bring that into your Pugmire game. You could bring that into your Phoenix Dawn Command game or if you're playing Dragon Age or something like that. Most of the exercises are going to have some overlap thematically. The book has 101 different exercises <laughs> in it. So like, even if you can't use everything, uh, odds are that you're going to be able to use a lot in the book to sort of help you with your character um, or just entertain yourself in the quiet moments when you're not playing the game. And when does it come out? Uh, this is going to be coming out in October, but it's available for pre-order right now. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold. Um, it's up for pre-order on Amazon at Barnes and Noble. And if you go have a local book retailer that you really like, you can walk in and tell them that you want the Ultimate RPG Character Backstory Guide by James D'Amato, and uh, you'll be able to pick it up or at least uh, reserve it for yourself for when the book gets published in October. This is published by Adams Media, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So like, wow. they, they've got good nice. distribution, so they should be mm-hmm. able to get it just about wherever you are. Awesome. Feeling the explosion on the side of our ship, I hope that all the crates are loaded. Juicing the engines forward, I point us to the sky and pray that whoever's shooting at us isn't in a ship. How are we already under fire? This will be even harder than I thought. People can't keep their hands off this stuff. I'm not paying you because it's easy. If you've got a problem, you can tweet it at me to at OneShotRPG. You can find us on Twitter at the Hydean Way, and I'm at CookieKit. You can find me at Deuterium Ice. And we here are at thehydeanway.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about on the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way. Our podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at tales at thehydeanway.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash thehydeanway. Or you can buy us a digital coffee at ko-fi.com slash the Heidi and Way.